Gresham College Presents When Currency Empires Fall by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Um, my name's Barbara Anderson. I'm the academic registrar. You're very welcome here this evening. We hope you'll be able to join us for drinks afterwards so you can continue discussing things with Professor Persaud or just drinking as you wish. Um, you may have noticed that this year Gresham College has two Professor Persauds. Or is it two Professors Persaud? Um, but for the avoidance of doubt, this one is the Mercer School Memorial Professor in Commerce. So tonight's lecture is about finance. Those of you who want to know how to handle life after your currency empire has fallen, come back on the 20th of October and the other Professor Persaud will be giving a lecture entitled The Nature of Belief and How We Lost Contact with Reality. And, and if that doesn't work, come back in November and he's telling us all we need to know about suicide. Um, but this evening it's Professor Avinash Persaud. Professor Persaud. Thank you very much, Barbara. Good evening, everyone. And before I begin, I'd like to uh, thank Stephen Spratt and Siddharth Cole for helping me in some of the preparation uh, of tonight's lecture. One of the nice things about being a currency forecaster is that expectations of you are very low. Moderate success is greeted with great surprise. But there are a few things in the world of currencies which are more certain than others. For example, at any one time, there tends to be a single dominant currency in the financial system. Not two or more, just one. Some people believe that while the euro may not topple the dollar, it will at least share the spoils of financial hegemony. I would contend that would be a good thing, a contest, a competition of reserve currencies might impose more financial discipline. History suggests that's not going to happen. In the currency markets, the spoils go to the victor alone. They are not shared. Either the euro succeeds internationally, or it does not. Which, least I anger my Europhile friends, does not make the euro a failure, just not an international currency one widely accepted outside the euro area. Many countries have credible, stable currencies that are not international currencies, like the UK, or Canada, or Japan, or Sweden. In the past, it was worth asking, what are the spoils to having an international reserve currency? Some countries deliberately avoided the internationalization of their currency, such as post-war Germany. The Bundesbank felt that the more international their currency, the more Deutschmarks that were held outside of Germany, the less control they would have over monetary supply, money supply and monetary conditions. European aspirations for the euro to rival the dollar, to become the world's reserve currency, probably no surprise to you, but they're more French than German. Today, the spoils of international reserve currency status 
are more clearly visible than ever before. If your currency is a reserve currency, it means you can pay for things by writing checks that nobody ever cashes. They view these checks as stores of value or sources of liquidity. It means because they don't cash your checks, you can spend far more than you earn to a far greater extent than anyone else. This this is exactly what the United States has done in recent years. In the last five years alone, U.S. national expenditure has exceeded its national income by over 22% of GDP. When that excess spending in the late 1990s was due to investment in technology, it wasn't clear whether the U.S. was exploiting its reserve currency status or simply enjoying an investment boom. Today, it is clear. The excess spending is on unproductive consumption, on tanks and bullets, cars and pills. Few countries in the past have ever been able to sustain a deficit on external account as large as that in the U.S. today. And those that have tried have often ended up being embroiled in a messy crisis. Remember Spain, Italy, the U.K. in 1992, Mexico, in 94, 95, Thailand in 97, Korea in 98, Brazil in 99. And when other countries have run sizable deficits for some time, like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and occasions the UK, they've often had to pay significant premiums in the money markets to borrow the money internationally. Not, as in the case of the US today, actually received a discount These are the immediate advantages to being a reserve currency. Now, international reserve currency status also lends the host country even greater influence than might otherwise be the case. One of the interesting passages of dollar diplomacy in recent years was in 1998, when the Japanese and Singapore authorities generously put up a lot of cash to help support the East Asian economies amid the Asian financial crisis, but it was the U.S. Treasury that dictated the terms. There are good reasons why there's seldom more than one dominant currency at any one time. Reserve currencies have the attributes of a natural monopoly, or in more modern-day parlance, a network. If it costs extra to trade with someone who uses a different currency than you, it makes sense for you to use the currency that most other people are using. This makes that currency yet bigger and cheaper. There's a very good analogy with computers. Microsoft Windows is the dollar of computer operating systems. This networking power is why central banks today store dollars in their reserves in a far greater proportion than the proportion of trade with the U.S. Globally, trade with the United States is around 30% of all trade. But central banks, on average, hold about 70% of their reserves in U.S. dollars. This networking power is also why commodities like oil, copper, and coffee are priced in dollars wherever they are found 
and whoever they are sold to. Something else we can be more certain of is that reserve currencies come and go. They don't last forever. International currencies in the past have included about a dozen currencies. In the years of 500 BC to zero, the Chinese liang, the Greek drachma, the silver punch mark coins of 4th century India. Later on, we had the Roman denarii, the Byzantine solidus, the Islamic dinar. We had in the Renaissance the Venetian ducato, and in Sir Thomas Gresham's day, it was the Dutch guilder, and of course, more recently, sterling and the US dollar. An analysis of a dozen reserve currencies in the past suggests that the necessary condition of a currency becoming a reserve currency appears to be its breadth of use, its ease and cost of transaction, not, as some might consider, the ability to hold its value. Clearly, hyperinflation would not serve a reserve currency well. But within the normal bands of inflation, it's size as a trader that matters most. In recent times, for example, the Swiss franc and the yen have been far better stores of value than the US dollar. Since 1980, they've appreciated by more than 21% in the case of the Swiss franc and 54% in the case of the yen against the dollar. And yet, for much of that time, if you combined all the reserves held in yen and Swiss francs, they accounted for less than 10% of the world's reserve currencies. They just weren't big enough. So, size really does matter. And of course, these economic empires were rooted in political entities. And history tells us that political powers come and go. I think reserve currencies play a part in the role, the emergence of these political and economic powers. I think that they help to augment the strength of an economic power, extend its life. I think also, though, they encourage economic hubris. At the end, they encourage financial abuse, taking advantage when the end is nigh, and sometimes an overextension of economies. In the 18th century Britain, in the 18th century Britain was the largest Western economy. Thanks in part to Sir Thomas Gresham, London was a centre of international trade and finance. The currency was convertible, and so sterling was the world's reserve currency. But by the turn of the 20th century, courtesy of enormous snatches of land, of discovery of gold, of large immigration, the US had become the world's largest economy, a position solidified by Europe's repeated attempts at self-annihilation from the 1880s to the 1940s. By the 1960s, the conversion was complete. The dollar had become the world's reserve currency with around 60% of all reserves in dollars, about twice the amount uh, as in sterling. But time doesn't stop. By the mid-21st century, 2050, the US will no longer 
be the world's largest economy. By then, China and India would have overtaken the US, Western Europe, and Japan on purchasing power parity terms at least, which is relevant here because that represents where exchange rates are likely to be in the long term. Today, China is already the second largest economy in the world, India the fourth. Today, already, combined India and China are the same size as the US. Optimistic measures of growth in China, suggesting China will maintain a growth rate of around 7% to 10% in the years ahead, suggests China will overtake the US far before 2050, in 20 years' time. Ladies and gentlemen, in my lifetime, the dollar will start to lose its reserve currency status. Not to the euro, but to the renminbi. The process is likely to be fraught and drawn out, rather like sterling's slip-slide away in the last century. Although the UK had lost its economic position at the turn of the 20th century, some 30 years later, 1928-1929, there was still more sterling in international reserves than the dollar. In part, this was due to the authorities trying to delay the process of losing reserve currency status. Gaining reserve currency status and having it, being able to write checks with no one cashing it, is as close to economic heaven as you can get. Losing reserve currency status, having an avalanche of all those checks you've ever written in the past coming back to be cashed, is close to hell. So you can see why the powers have tried to avoid it, delay the process. The principal way in which Britain tried to slow the process was through the use of imperial power and influence. By the 1930s, Sterling's reserve currency status was largely a result of sterling balances held by the British colonies. The majority of sterling reserves in 1930 were in fact held by Ireland, India, Pakistan, and Australia. Not the world's biggest economies at the time. Not the US, France, Germany, or Japan. In the post-war period, the British authorities formalized the sterling area, within which there were few restrictions for trade and capital, but outside of which uh, there were. One could argue that sterling was already no longer an international reserve currency, in the sense of third parties voluntarily choosing it, uh, choosing it as a vehicle currency. However, there's no reason to suppose that the U.S. would not follow a new imperialism by exerting similar pressure on countries to stick to the dollar block. There are some wider implications of this analysis. First, Those Europeans who want the euro to become a major international reserve currency must consider an aggressive enlargement eastwards. A European Union by 2025, which included Russia, Turkey, and their neighbors, could rival the dollar and the renminbi. A European Union of just Western Europe will not. Second, the loss of reserve currency status for the U.S. will bring a long period of political and economic crisis. It was economically and politically painful for the U.K. when it lost its reserve currency status. 
Much of the last century, almost the first 75 years of the last century, the UK economy and politics was dominated by losing this economic and international currency position. The economic history of the UK in the 20th century is all about the difficulties of dealing with the sterling balances coming back, wanting to be paid. One of the things you notice when you look back at reserve currencies in the past is that their end is always associated with inflation. It's very hard to identify and disentangle the cause and effect. I suspect what's happening is the country is losing its reserve currency status. All this local currency debt is coming back. All these checks are coming back to be cashed. And so dealing with this debt, the country tries to inflate its way out of the problem. That was the case with the denarii, the solidus. It wasn't so much the case with sterling. I suspect it would be the case with the U.S. Because although the U.K. lost its reserve currency status in the 1940s, partly as a result of its international position worsening, it was never a very large debtor. Today, the U.S. is fully taking advantage of its reserve currency status. It is building up tremendous debt. The rest of the world wants to buy it. Today, some 60% of... uh, Today, the U.S. debt represents some 60% of its GDP. There will be a lot of debt when the dollar begins to lose its reserve currency status. The third implication of this analysis is that if the renminbi really is going to be the world's next reserve currency, it first has to leave the dollar block. Today, the renminbi is pegged to the U.S. dollar. Today, as the Chinese economy grows, that brings strength, not undermines the U.S. dollar. The renminbi in China is part of the dollar zone today. So when will China leave, and, and why would China leave the dollar block? I think the best way to think about that is in terms of what I call the second rule of foreign exchange. The second rule of foreign exchange is that the smaller, more open an economy is, the more the authorities try to manage the exchange rate. And similarly, The larger, more closed an economy is, the more dominated it is by domestic consumption, for example, the less the authorities care about the exchange rate. Think of Belgium and the United States as two extremes. Policymakers perceive a trade-off over the course of the political cycle between the economic flexibility afforded by a floating exchange rate that can respond to new and varying circumstances and the economic disruption that a volatile exchange rate, sensitive to external factors, factors often beyond the control of a country, can cause. This potential disruption is greatest the more open an economy is, the more exposed it is to international trade. It's why small open economies opt for a fixed exchange rate and why large closed economies prefer to keep the flexibility of a floating rate. It's why there was no debate in Belgium joining EMU, but why the US can never understand what EMU is about. We think of China today as a vast country with a growing economy. But in many ways, it has the characteristics 
of a small open economy. The market sectors of China are extremely open, driven, and dominated by international trade. Although I'm not altogether comfortable with the meaning of statistics in a command economy like China, where the numbers are often quite synthetic, for what they're worth, they suggest in terms of trade, as a percent of GDP, China is a more open economy than the US or Euroland, and about as open as France and Spain and Korea, countries which have opted for fixed exchange rates. The current arrangement, therefore, of the Chinese peg to the dollar is likely to persist for a while longer. That does not mean there won't be a revaluation of the renminbi. I think it could happen as early as the end of this year. But the Chinese will revalue the renminbi and stick to a pegged system, a dollar link, though the limits may widen from the current 1% or so. But the dollar peg is not China's destiny. It may have an open economy today, but in the longer term, China will be a large economy, driven by domestic consumption, not external trade. Then it will prefer a more flexible exchange rate. The decision to move from the peg to float will occur sometime in the next decade, and it will mark the beginning of the end of the dollar's reserve currency status. To conclude, the United States today, as Britain before, has benefited greatly from having the world's reserve currency as its local currency. This has allowed America to spend 22% more than its income over the past five years alone. No other country could do that. But having the reserve currency means you can write checks and nobody cashes them. But reserve currencies come and go. They're determined largely by whoever is the biggest economic power of the day. Over the past two and a half thousand years, there have been a dozen reserve currencies that no longer exist today. Sterling lost its status in the first half of the 20th century. The dollar will lose its status in the first half of the 21st century. The beginning of the end for the dollar will be triggered by an inevitable decision by the Chinese to switch from a dollar peg to a free float sometime in the next decade. And losing reserve currency status will lead to a series of economic and political crises in the United States. The world's new reserve currency is an unlikely fellow. It is not the euro, and today is not even convertible. Thank you very much indeed. Are there any questions? Uh, the, uh, uh, the United States has, of course, um, uh, uh, brought this about by being very generous with aid to, to a lot of countries. And uh, one wonders whether that is essential for it or whether China or any other country which aspires to the same sort of um, objective is going to do the same thing. Possibly it may not be necessary in the case of China. I wonder if you have a opinion on that. 
I think some people would be a bit surprised by your first comment, because as you know, as a, as a percent of GDP, uh, American aid is around 0.3%. It's quite small and far below the uh, UN uh, target of 0.7%. However, I think you make a very important point, and indeed, one of the reasons for uh, the Marshall Plan in the 1940s to help rebuild Europe was America thinking in a very proactive way, one might say with some irony in a very French way, about the way they could solidify the power of the U.S. dollar. And many of the arrangements of post-war world, uh, when one reads the the history books, uh, were, were developed with a sense of America thinking about its future as a reserve currency and wanting to play that role. I think China understands international politics very well, far more so than, say, Japan, which may at one time have had the chance to be an international reserve currency. I think the Chinese today, who are building up tremendous international reserves, you know the Chinese hold today some $450 billion of dollar reserves. So they're using their current account surpluses to generate, uh, to build up dollar reserves. And I think the primary reason for that is because they feel that gives them political power. They may not have military power, but when you own half a trillion dollars of U.S. debt, that gives you a seat at the table, and literally, as you know, they have just been welcomed to be part of the G7 discussions. So I think China is very much conscious of this uh, and is going to pursue uh, that uh, as a target. And, of course, China uh, is a a large um, uh, provider of international assistance, Um, You can't go to anywhere in Africa today without finding China scouting around for oil reserves of some kind uh, and establishing some kind of linkage with the economies and the countries in hope for future partnerships. Thank you. There was a question behind you, and then Michael. You mentioned quite a lot about China, but uh, do you think there's much of a probability that the other candidate you mentioned as a large economy, India, could, as a democracy at the moment, try and grab the accolade from China? Um, it's, a, it's a good question, Peter. Um, in terms of size, China outstrips it uh, in terms of population uh, size and, at the moment, economic growth. It may be that China is unable to sustain that growth rate. One has to be very cautious about forecasts in 20 years' time. It may well be as a Chinese economy grows, its ability to grow at that pace declines, and China uh, and India is, is able somehow, being a more market-oriented uh, economy, uh, to do so. I think though it may come down to the point raised in the first question, which is I don't think the Indians really have any interest in being the world's reserve currency. I don't think they want to play a global political game. I think the Chinese are very interested in doing that. And I think that that distinction may be why China uh, fills that role. It's quite possible that these two are the big powers. They will be the largest economies in 2050. China first, India second. And it will be very interesting because they, at the moment, are pursuing a very different development strategy. India... Uh, at the margins at least, more democratic, more market-oriented, um, and China uh, less so. And so it'll be interesting to see how things develop. But I think it's that, that desire is not there. Michael had a question. The, the Marshall Plan, and uh, of course the dollar and, and the power of the West, Western society, America, has actually grown its power since the First World War, not the Second World War. 
and stands now as the world power. But the rate of growth of China, the rate of growth of an already huge um, population, and I think I'm right in saying that China was the leading economy in about the 16th century. So it may well be that, that China is, is A, um, a benefactor, or B, a threat. I'm not sure which one. I, mean, I think one should see it just as part of global competition. I think that's a very good point. And I think that, in fact, um, you know, economists uh, often argue for more competition. Competition improves better discipline. Uh, and I think that uh, in some odd way, when we had the Cold War, we had the two powers competing for influence, uh, there was uh, some things were better than when we have uh, a world of one hyperpower. And I think in finance, too. Uh, more competition is better. And I think you make an interesting point, Michael, that you know, people view this as, uh, as linear, China growing uh, from a small base to something powerful. But of course, as you say, in the Middle Ages and beyond, China was probably the world's largest economy. Uh, it, the Chinese probably view it as a temporary interlude in which they lost reserve currency status. <laughs> There's a question there. Oh, sorry, as you've got the mic already. Thank you, sir. Um... My question is, has anybody told the Americans? And if so, what do you think their reaction will be? I think one of the, um, uh, one of the things you tend to, be, tend to get as, as you are a hyperpower is um, you feel threats don't really exist. Uh, and indeed, when Europeans talk about reserve currency status and the possibility of the euro becoming more international... Um, my American friends and colleagues scoff at that possibility. Uh, but I think history is useful. Uh, and uh, America has been uh, a strong power, as Michael was saying. The turn of the 20th century, the 1900s, U.S. economy became uh, dominant. Um, and were it to lose it by 2050, 150 years, that would be about reasonable when one looks at, uh, one looks at history. In, case, in, the, in the U.K.'s case, it was, sterling was international reserve currency for about 150 years, too. Yes, I very much enjoyed your talk. Um, I'm not quite sure we'll just have one dominant currency. Historically, gold and silver, gold and sterling, dollar and sterling. One could easily imagine the comparison is with languages, English, Chinese, Spanish perhaps today. Perhaps you have a range of international assets in 30 years' time. I don't think that includes the Swiss franc, and I don't think the euro will exist. What do you think they'll be? Well, I think that commodity-linked currencies, you're talking about gold and silver, not linked currencies, commodities as currencies, can compete, can exist, because they are convertible. They, are, they represent their, uh, their value. Uh, the gold coin is the value of the weight of the gold uh, in the coin with a very tiny premium. A paper currency is different. Uh, and I think that, uh, and I, was, I have to say, I was surprised by the observation uh, as much, but if you look back in history, for whatever reason, and maybe I don't have the reason, it, it seems very, very rare indeed for a financial system to have more than one dominant currency. In the past, we did have a period in the 12th century, and I again have to thank Dr. Stephen Spratt for much of the research here, uh, of the solidas and, the, and the, uh, uh, the dinar. But I think you could argue those were very much separate financial systems, driven by the separate empires, the Islamic empire and, and the Western one. Uh, and they're all, the, the, the political entities were very different. But other than that episode, uh, it is rare to find 
paper currencies of some kind uh, existing uh, in tandem. There was a question back there, and then uh, Andrew. Hi, Abnash. Uh, the two main benefits from reserve currencies status. One is, of course, that other countries are right to hold your currency, so that's an advantage. The second, as you mentioned, was the transaction that commodities are priced in that. So under the current scenario, one could look at is that because oil, for instance, and all of the commodities are priced in the dollar, the commodity prices in dollar terms are less volatile than they are in terms of other currencies. So there's some benefit from that. The other is Brazil, for instance, holds about $50 billion of U.S. reserves, uh, U.S. dollar reserves, which it borrows at 13% and lends to the U.S. government at 3 So there's a massive subsidy of about $5 billion every year. Uh, my question is, given that about $1.5 trillion of the current $2.5 trillion of reserves have been built up over the past seven, eight years, mostly after the Southeast Asian crisis. Uh, and that is where the significant chunk of the benefit of a reserve currency comes from. First, how do you see this spanning out in the future? Do you see reserves, uh, worldwide reserves, growing exponentially? And in that sense, you know, the benefit, of course, would increase. Um, and also, is there not a chance that there would be a more, uh, I, I think someone already mentioned it, there would be a sort of more balanced view wherein there have already been such suggestions of commodities being priced in euros, and so it might, we might actually end up with two or three dominant currencies. Yes, you said that they haven't, that hasn't happened historically, but the landscape perhaps in the future is different. So I'd just like to hear your comments on that. Thanks. Complicated question. <laughs> um, I think you, know, you raised some interesting points there. The whole reason for countries holding reserves is a little bit odd. Um, uh, firstly, if you are a developing country, and it tends to be developing countries which own the most reserves, the East Asian currencies in particular, they, as you said, are basically their poor countries lending uh, money to the rich countries uh, and lending at very low rates of interest. It makes no economic sense at all. Well, they do that because it provides them some kind of security and safety. And yet they will tell you that they're not very sure how much safety and security they provide. Uh, I was speaking to one governor the other day who has $150 billion in reserves, and he was saying, well, you know, if there really is a crisis, $150 wouldn't be enough. So it's a very interesting kind of confidence game that you want to have reserves to try and make people think you shouldn't try and have a crisis, you shouldn't uh, speculate, but if you were to be in a crisis, it wouldn't be enough. So it's a very odd situation. And uh, I and others have been looking at uh, how developing countries might uh, change that in the future. Uh, and we think that there are a number of other financial uh, instruments they could use other than uh, lending America cheap funds um, or lending any rich country uh, cheap funds. But I think that uh, in this regard, uh, there's going to be a lot of inertia. Uh, it's very hard to persuade. It was very hard to persuade countries not to hold gold. It was very hard to persuade countries to reduce uh, their ammunition uh, and their powder in favor of something new. I hope it will happen because it's a very uh, expensive and not very efficient way of trying to get security. But I can't see it changing uh, very soon. I think Andrew had a question. Could you expand a little on your views of the likely implications for U.S. foreign policy as this uh, unfolds? And it's very interesting because if you look at uh, today, American uh, foreign policy and American uh, economic uh, sort of treasury officials concerned with international finance are supposedly urging the Chinese to do exactly what would be wrong for the U.S. dollar. Uh, 
They're urging the Chinese to float their exchange rate. And I think it's partly because the political cycle is so short, they're thinking of the short-term benefits of a more competitive dollar rather than the long-term consequences of a uh, debt-ridden country losing its reserve currency status. But I think that when that begins to happen, and at the edges they start to see the consequences of losing reserve currency status, there will be a tremendous amount of pressure placed on countries uh, to keep hold of the U.S. dollar. Uh, and in many incentives uh, will be made. Uh, the new imperialism is not really about political control and governors in white suits uh, raising their flags, but it's about economic influence. It's about cutting people off uh, from uh, the access to whatever they need if uh, they don't follow uh, your encouragement. So I think there are many ways in which powerful countries can exert influence today, and I'm sure they will do so. I'm slightly puzzled by the concept of the benefits of having a reserve currency. As I understand the matter, dollar assets are held abroad in three, possibly three forms. One is if someone holds dollar notes, and to the extent that these are not forgeries, certainly the um, U.S. benefits from that. But there are two other categories. One is if you price your trade in dollars, for example, the trade in cocoa. That can be simply an accounting convenience. It did not generate any demand for dollars at all, so what's the benefit there? Then there are people like central banks who have acquired dollars in foreign trade, but they don't hold the dollar bills. What they invest in is U.S. government securities. And they, of course, do that largely because the U.S. government security is a very deep liquid market. So the question is, is the U.S. able to borrow on better terms because it's, in some sense, a major currency, or is it able to borrow on better terms because it's a big economy, or does it indeed simply borrow on better terms? Sure, good question. I don't, I don't think that the commodity aspect, commodities being priced in dollars, to me is very powerful. Uh, where I have done some empirical work on that, as you say, the transactions demand um, is there, but it's not very significant compared to other demands. The advantage is that central banks and others, not just central banks, corporates, hold their reserves in U.S. dollars. And that allows the U.S. to borrow cheaply. If you look at the level of long-term interest rates in the United States, it is much lower than any other country could borrow at, given the U.S. economic fundamentals. 60% of uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, a deficit-to-GDP of 5%, would you have your 10-year government bond yields yielding around four, around four percentage points? If you look at any other country with the same macroeconomic fundamentals, they would have much higher yields. So that is the advantage of being a reserve currency. You can borrow cheaply. Um, I think Brandon had a question and, and, and then... Thank you. Um, some of the more interesting uh, recent studies I've been reading are about population change. And China appears to be one of the um, countries in the world which is likely to grow uh, or likely to decline in population long before it grows rich. Um, uh, how, how does this affect your, or does this affect your analysis? And, and if so, how? Uh, because America isn't actually an aging population, whereas China is, and Russia is a very declining one already. Well, interestingly, America does start to age quite significantly in about 10 to 15 years' time. But you raise an interesting point, because China is a very unusual emerging market. China doesn't have a young population. 
Because of the one-child policy, which existed for quite some time, um, the traditionally emerging markets are countries with very large, very, uh, the demographics are very triangular, where they have a large proportion of the population is young. Uh, and those tend to be quite good features for an economy, uh, young, able workers, and you don't have uh, many pensioners to provide for. China actually has a very vertical uh, demographic pattern uh, because of the one-child policy. However, if you look at the United Nations uh, statistics on population, we can predict quite accurately uh, the nature of population given demographics. I mean, we know how many 40-year-olds are going to be in the UK in 20 years' time because they're all currently 20. So demographics are the very few things we can forecast. So we've got some very good forecasts on the nature, the structure, and the size of the Chinese population over the next 50 years, assuming we don't have plagues and nuclear wars, etc. And even based on that, the Chinese population will still grow, uh, but it really is getting very close to its hypothetical full uh, size. Indeed, some estimates suggest, back to Peter's question, that India could well actually surpass that. Um, uh, that's a possibility. India has a very different set of demographics. But we took those numbers into account when we were calculating GDP. So we, looked, we took the United Nations population growth numbers and looked at the economic growth forecast. So we were taking that into account. The U.S. economy does start to age uh, in about 15 uh, years' time. And interestingly, I don't know how many people recognize the vitality that comes to an economy from immigration. And as you know, the U.S. has a long history of welcoming immigrants, economic immigrants in particular. And one of the many sad things of 9-11 is that attitude towards economic immigrants did change quite significantly. Uh, and I don't know if it's fully appreciated by U.S. policymakers what the economic consequences will be if they don't continue to allow economic immigration and that uh, very positive impact on labor supply. There's a question there. You mentioned the, the, uh, the yen. I just wanted to, to really flag a point about um, China in terms of uh, yen exposure. I mean, given that in terms of foreign direct investment, a lot of the um, FDI going into China, as you'll be aware, particularly in terms of high trade, taking to electronics, automotive, is obviously very Japan exposed, if you look at Toyota's activities in the last year, for example. So that's the first piece. To what extent do you think that? Because I thought you touched on the yen, but I, just want, I think that's perhaps a more significant trend. Um, the other point is, the, um, is South Asia and regional trading blocks. And to what extent do you think the new kids on the block, is, so far as they're appearing, um, SAFTA, for example, in South Asia, ASEAN, if India actually gets, um, comes on board, 10 years from now, do you think how will the emergence of those blocks um, in practice rather than reality um, affect some of the comments you were making? Very, very interesting. Um, firstly, I think there was a very strong connection with Japan uh, and China. You know, uh, Japan used to be uh, its, most, uh, its biggest export uh, partner was the United States. Um, today, it's now China. It's been a major change in the structure of Japanese trade. They are more dependent on the Chinese economy than they are on the U.S. economy. We tend to think about Japan exporting cars to America. Well, as you say, it now exports sort of high capital goods uh, to, uh, to China. And it's one of the reasons why and I, we sit here with uh, our senior currency trader at our currency fund. And I know that if he sees that China is going to revalue, the first thing he's going to do is buy the yen. Uh, 
uh, because of the consequences, the positive consequences to trading partners with China um, if they do revalue. So I think that's a, an important point. I think ASEAN um, and a growth of a significant free trade bloc in Asia is going to be extremely powerful. Indeed, the other way our thinking has to change is that we used to think of the world economy as having the U.S. as a locomotive. And whenever the U.S. catches cold, they say, you know, everyone else gets flu. Whenever the U.S. sneezes, everyone else catches cold. Well, actually, we are shifting in that world today where we're having, we may not have dual reserve currencies, but we have dual economic nodes. Uh, And the Chinese locomotive and the ASEAN locomotive is as important today as the U.S. locomotive and clearly will become more important uh, with time. And I don't see enough thinking changing. One very uh, good example of that is your pension. How much of your pension is in in China or China-related stocks? I know that about half of it uh, is going to be in U.S. stocks. Um, Anyone else who hasn't had a first question before we... Sorry, the gentleman down here, sitting down, and then. Um, Can I just take a shorter-term view? Uh, Supposing the Chinese floated in the next few months, which they may, and I know that since 1997 there's been a lot of discussion about currency arrangements in Southeast Asia. To what extent would you get a Rembrandt zone developing within the ASEAN area? And what would the consequences be for the speeding up to what you're talking about? I think that's a very good point because I would argue that we will see that there really is a renminbi zone. We think of Asia as being populated by dollar pegs, but they only have dollar pegs because China has a dollar peg. And that when China revalues or floats, what you will see is the other currencies revaluing their dollar pegs. So on paper, they're still linked to the dollar, but actually what's driving it is China. Uh, And I think what will happen is you will see visibly, it will emerge uh, from the veil, that in reality what's happened in Asia is not a dollar link, it's a renminbi link. Uh, The risk-free asset status that's assigned to the U.S. dollar and and associated U.S. treasuries by the financial markets reinforces the status of the U.S. dollar as the reserve asset. And perhaps the reason that this exists is because the U.S. dollar is the default reserve asset. So they reinforce each other. Now, my question to you is, um, given that an empirical investigation of a U.S. dollar time series shows that it actually is not the least risky asset or, or the U.S. dollar is not the least risky or the least volatile currency, how, what, part of, uh, what part do you think do financial markets play in terms of percentage, rough number, as to reinforcing the status? I mean, how much of the support actually comes because when we go to school, we're taught U.S. dollars, risk-free assets, U.S. treasuries, risk-free assets, and everything else in financial markets is based on that fundamental assumption. Well, I think that you make it a very important distinction between being a reserve currency and being the risk-free asset. And indeed, uh, I know in, in some of uh, Siddharth's analysis of uh, what happens in risk-averse environments, and, uh, and uh, we actually see uh, a rush to traditional stores of value, like the Swiss franc and the yen, more than the U.S. dollar. And indeed, those currencies have interest rates which are as low as the U.S., if not lower. So the financial markets are telling you that the risk-free asset is not the dollar. It is the Swiss franc. It is the yen. But that doesn't make those currencies, so they may be stores of value. It doesn't make those currencies reserve currencies. 
um, because their economies aren't big enough, their currencies and, and their structures don't make it easy to transact with. And so there is a distinction between uh, having the most stable and the, 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 the most safe currency uh, and having uh, a reserve currency. And the euro may not make it as a reserve currency, but I think over the long term it probably will end up being a safer currency than the dollar, more conservative monetary policy maybe a stronger currency, but the dollar, uh, uh, unless threatened by the renminbi, can remain being a reserve currency without being the safest. I think it's probably time we uh, continue this discussion uh, more uh, comfortably and casually over a glass of something uh, next door. So please, can I invite you to join us next door? Thank you very much indeed. For all information please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.